welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice to proven bowhunting tactics and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Bird. All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and as always, glad that you've taken some time to be with us today for yet another, and I say this every time because it's always true, another spectacular show. And, you know, I had such a good time on the last episode speaking to Mr. Randy Ulmer, the man, the myth, the legend, that I invited Randy to come back again this week for another go at it. So, Randy, welcome back. Long time, no talk yeah it's been a week yeah it's been a week and i'm glad i was well, able to get you me yeah absolutely hey you have a standing invitation for peterson's bow hunting radio because there's few uh better uh in the world of uh, archery and bow hunting than you so it's a pleasure and you know last week we talked a lot about uh, the mental aspect of bow hunting and kind of holding it together uh, in the moment of truth and those encounters with big animals and and you know what sort of separates the the hunters from the killers. This month or yeah, this month, this week, I wanted to talk a little bit about equipment and how much better equipment has gotten. You know, we just wrapped up here at the office work on our 2018 new gear guide, which will be coming out. Uh, here shortly and everyone who listens and I know you're all subscribers to Peterson's Bowhunting where you pick it up on the local newsstand so you want to keep your eye out for that but there's so much innovation every year and you think man how can they make these things any better and every year they do and one of the things that I think is neat is to see how all these different manufacturers, Randy, spur one another on to constantly improve the quality of the bows that we get to shoot. You know, one of the big trends that I've seen for 2018, which I think is really good, is the idea of balance. You know, manufacturers are really starting to pay attention to having a well-balanced bow. You're seeing, you know, Hoyt uh, has moved the center of gravity down towards the grip area with that uh, wider limb pocket on the bottom. So they're bringing more weight lower in the bow so you don't get that top-heavy feel. Uh, Prime has done the same thing uh, with its riser design. They actually kind of did it in 2017 here this year with the Synergy and then they're continuing that with the logic for 2018. Uh, Matthews uh, has done some things to their bow design on the triax to again try and get rid of that top heavy feel that you can run into with a lot of bows and so the whole idea is you're designing a bow that when you get to full draw it's easier to get on target, it's easier to hold on target and it's easier to have a good follow through because once you release the shot that bow is not going to want to you know move off a target as you try to have you know a good follow-through and maintain your form so it's like every year it seems like there's more and more that's one of the big things i've seen for for 2018 and then that got me thinking about my first bow and i'll talk about that a little bit but i'm wondering you know do you remember randy what your very first compound hunting bow was 
and you know what was it like what were some of the specs and features and and how much have you seen change over the years <laughs> yeah um my first compound bow was a bear alaskan after having shot recurse for a long time and it had i believe four wheels well i still have it four wheels and then the cable actually came down and attached to the riser uh by the grip uh and i knew so little about bows at that point of course it had you know uh the steel cables um and i knew so little about bows back then that i really didn't know how it worked i just pulled it back with my fingers and without sight and just shot it uh and shot it for several years without having ever taken it into the uh shop to get it tuned so it very well could have been completely out of tune and i shot so poorly that it, <laughs> i would have never known uh now, now what, but yeah i think it had uh what's that what year you have any idea what the vintage was on this thing around what 1977 okay 1977 bear alaskan yes and did you think it was cool at the time Oh my gosh! I mean, compared to a recurve bow, oh my word! I was uh, it was it was a dream, um, and like I say, I shot it for several years with fingers, and then my brother got a release aid. He got a hot shot, I believe it was a red three fingered hot shot that uh, you know back then it had about a an eighth of a quarter an inch of travel on the trigger, <laughs> but it was. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a half an inch or an inch. Just, oh geez, and, and all of a sudden he just started uh he started uh shooting so much better than me uh but i was a diehard you know traditionalist because i wanted to shoot fingers and uh, then of course he got a sight too and uh and so he's always one step ahead of me and uh you know i was always uh, a slow learner but uh, when, once i got a release in a sight you know i was dangerous after 30 yards <laughs> so you have any idea like how how long you know you think that bear alaskan was what your what your axle i think it was 48 was? inches it, it was very long yeah so really good for and a ground the wheels, line, right? the wheels were about the size of the silver dollar um uh and i believe if i'm not mistaken they may have been made of plastic i have to look but uh, no it was uh it's very rudimentary it's funny when you pull it back now you think how in the world because i think the let off was 40 percent or something like that but that was still so much better than a, a recurve where you're stacking it up at the very back you could hold this thing it seemed like forever sure. and it, and it, you know it shot well uh really uh considering the amount of skill i had it, it shot very well very consistent of course with those small wheels and that long and i think the brace height was probably nine inches uh so you know it shot very well it shot very slowly because we <laughs> my brother and i spent all our money on our bows and and so we only had enough money that first season to buy a dozen arrows about 22 19s imagine that uh and with 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 that bow and 2219s uh and no range finders uh, you had to judge your yardage perfectly that's why we had to keep our shots pretty close sure well there's still a lot of people that only buy you know six arrows at a time so if you and your brother split a dozen you know that, i mean that still happens believe it or not you know i mean everyone's on a budget so um 
Oh, well, yeah. Well, we shot those arrows. I think I told you last week, we shot those arrows in the sand dunes until uh, until they were completely silver. They started out black or olive, and, and by the end of the summer, they were silver, uh, at least almost all the way up to the fletching. So we wore them out. And back then, you know, we didn't have an arrow straightener, but you just kind of looked down the barrel of the shaft and kind of tweaked it over your knee a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, that was the advantage of aluminum anyway, as opposed to carbon, you know, of course, which... Once it cracks or breaks, it's done. At least you can try and keep on getting by for a while with those old aluminum arrows. Oh, and the 2219s had such a thick wall that you'd really have to hit something hard hard to bend them. So do you have any idea what kind of speed you'd get out of that old bear? Oh, I don't know, but I remember when PSC advertised that they were, they had a bow that would shoot 230 feet per second, and this was back in the early or, or early 80s or late 70s, and I thought 230 feet per second. There's no way. because <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm guessing we were shooting in the you know the the high 100s, like 170 or 180. I mean, it really did look like a rainbow going out there. Uh, but you know, I think it was a good thing for me because I think shooting um, those bows without range finders taught me to judge yardage very well. And the other thing it did is it, it that and shooting a recurve taught me to be a uh, a really good stalker because you had to get out here in the West, you had to get close uh, to even have a chance at killing something. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of funny you mentioned 230 feet per second because um, fast forward 20 years from your first compound bow. And now, in fairness to you, Randy, you're not, I don't think you're actually 20 years older than I am. But I just happened to not start bow hunting until after college. So, you know, a lot of folks start, you know, when they're 12 or 13 or 14. And, and I was probably 22 or maybe a little older than that just because I didn't grow up as a hunter. That's a whole different story. But long story short, my very first compound bow, Randy, was a, a PSC Mach 8. Uh, and that oh was gosh. a vintage 1997, okay? And even in 1997, and the reason I know all this is I actually went and dug an old magazine from March of 1997 out of the archives as I was writing my column for the new gear guide because I was, all this new technology got me thinking about my first bow and then I had to go and refresh my memory about what that bow was like and I saw a picture of it and that brought back a flood i was like yeah there it is man and i was like man that was a sweet bow and uh so the pse mach 8 measured it was 40 inches axle to axle so see there even from 77 to 97 we dropped about eight inches on the axle to axle length but still i think now i'm like man 40 inches could you imagine getting a 40 inch axle to axle hunting bow in 2018 you know and um, well i think it might help i think yeah, it might help a lot of people. <laughs> well, hey, you are you are uh, you are way behind me. I, I the year I I won Vegas, I won it with a Mach five. So that's three generations, three generations of the Mach bow uh, ahead of you. Uh, 
And and that bow, it had to be 42 inches long, and it was a dream. I mean, it shot like a dream. Uh, so I imagine by the time they got to a Mach 8, it was a wonderful shooting bow. Oh, yeah. And those I mean, bows back then, you know, they weren't really designed that much for speed. They shot, they did shoot fairly quickly, but, but boy, they were just nice to shoot, really nice to shoot, and much more forgiving, I think, uh, if you set it up properly than yeah, think, some shorter bows. I think it had like a seven and a half inch brace height and um it's funny you talk about speed you'd think with a name like mock right i mean in psc of course as you mentioned you know you shot a mock 5 i don't know what number it eventually went up to before they went away from the mock platform and, and you know started to use some different model names but you'd think that these would be speed burner bows because you know mock 8 i mean mock 8 would be pretty fast i don't know how many miles per hour that would be but it's funny because I, I i looked at the advertised speed for that mock and the advertised speed was 230 feet per second. Now, I do have to, <laughs> I, I have to give some uh, perspective on that because if you'll, you'll remember this more so even than I will and a lot of our listeners, back then the advertised speeds were AMO speed as opposed yes. to IBO speed, which is what everybody uses today. And the old AMO speed ratings were done with 60-pound draw weights and pretty heavy arrows, like a 540-grain arrow or something like that, whereas now everybody's doing their IBO speed ratings with 70-pound draw weights mm -hmm. and like 350-grain arrows. So it's not really an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, but still, could you imagine, again, imagine somebody in 2018 advertising a flagship bow model with a speed of 230 feet per second it'd be you know nobody would buy it <laughs> no no but you know it, it's neat to uh you know it's neat to look back and and see the progression of, of bow hunting and the neat thing is uh, really because my you know my kids have started bow hunting and, and uh a lot of young people uh, that I know, and the the learning curve for those kids is, I mean, really, I could take a, a kid that's, you know, decently athletic, and, and I can have him shoot well enough to go hunting in, in a couple of weeks. It's really remarkable. Back then, um, there was, well, so much lack of knowledge from the, the you know, uh, from for an office archer, they couldn't go out and go get great equipment and, and have the knowledge and and so the learning curve is so much shorter now and, and, and people can go out and be very very efficient very quickly which I think keeps people in the game and it, it's also much more enjoyable if you can actually hit what you're aiming at. Oh absolutely and, and you know what I think is because of all the, the new technologies and how good they are and how you know, Bill Winkie has said over the years a number of times, and I think he's very much right, that maybe, you know, back in the day, go back to, to a 1977 or even a 1987, when compound bow technology was still in its, you know, formative years, and when you found a, an exceptionally good bow, that might be notable. And now, it's come... 180 degrees and if you go out on the market today it's actually not very notable if you find an exceptionally good bow it's pretty notable if you actually find one that's kind of crappy because there aren't very many bad bows you know to be found anymore you could 
pretty much get any bow, whether it's you know your fifteen hundred dollar flagship model or your four hundred ninety nine dollar you know entry level model that's you know has a draw weight that adjusts you know from fifteen to seventy pounds and a draw length range of you know twenty to thirty inches, and you could shoot almost as well with that bow as you can with that fifteen hundred dollar bow. Well, yeah, the the advance in technology is remarkable. Seriously, that five hundred dollar bow uh, would be much better. Um, I mean, performance, speed, everything. As a bow hunting bow, it'd be better than the most expensive bow you could have bought twenty years ago, by far, by far. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, you know, it's it's uh, the other thing that I think is interesting is. Historically, and, and you know, you just touched on it, and it was true. In 1977, 1987, you know, 1990, whatever, you really had to practice and maintain your familiarity with your equipment to be proficient as a bow hunter, to be that ethical bow hunter who could put the arrow, you know, where it needed to be and make that killing shot. And so bow hunting has always been thought of as this really, you know, challenging sport that requires, you know, a certain level of dedication that's maybe beyond what the average firearms hunter has. And I still think that's true to large degree, but at the same time, I wonder if we scare some people off because, you know, it's funny, you hear people say, well, you know, you really have to practice a lot to be, you know, able to be a good bow hunter. And I think to myself, really? I'm like, I've got my bow from two years ago dialed in and I hung it on the hook. And you know what? If I picked it up and went out in two or three nights in the backyard and it was still on, I'm pretty sure I could go out and <laughs> kill plenty of deer at 30 yards and in, you know. Uh, so it, it is, like you say, the learning curve is shorter. And I'm not sure, thanks to the all the, the improvements that the manufacturers have made in the design of the bows, that we, it does require quite as much discipline as it probably did at one time. Now, you know, do you agree with me that or am I being... You know, heretical. No, you, 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 it's it's true. Uh, one thing I will say, though, if you learn the right way from the beginning and avoid uh, several of the pitfalls that we talked about last week, uh, if you avoid those pitfalls and if you learn, uh, it really doesn't require much practice. Now. As far as being an efficient hunter, the thing that took a lot of practice back in the day, well, first of all, uh, you know, we talked about how great the bows are now. Back then, it wasn't whether you got a good bow, really. It was whether you could uh, tinker with that bow enough to make it shoot good. And there were some a lot of unshootable bows back then. But if you could, if you could tune that bow, and if you knew what you were doing, which very few people did back then, if you could tune that bow and make it shoot well, yes. But the bows tended to go out of tune fairly quickly back then because of the string materials and the limb materials and that sort of thing. But but um, the thing that has made uh, us so much more efficient as bow hunters, the one thing, in my opinion, that has completely changed the game was the uh, laser range finders. Because before that, you know, if you didn't go out and practice your yardage judging constantly, uh, you would lose it very quickly. And, and you know, uh, at that point, especially with the bow shooting so much slower, if if if... If you didn't practice your yardage judging, you know, 
it was easy to miss a deer at 25 or 30 yards. Now, a 25 or 30 yard shot for most average bow hunters is just a chip shot. You know, and 40 yards might be pushing it a little bit, 50 pushing it more, but but really with a rangefinder, when you know exactly where to aim, um, you're so much more efficient. And, and really, once you've learned to shoot properly, you know, it's kind of like riding a bike. I know that's a cliche, but it, it really is. You can, like you say, set your bow down and you can pick it up and, and, and just shoot it. You know, it's 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 uh, kind of the opposite for recurve shooters. Obviously, they're not used the range finder and they have to shoot every day uh, but you're right um, I think people still have the idea that uh, shooting a bow is, is a, a very difficult thing and, and it takes a lot of a lot of practice but and that's why I think people have kind of gone to compounds but really uh, I don't think they need to go to compounds if they just pick up a I mean not compounds but uh, crossbows uh, crossbows right but uh, it really if they just shoot a compound bow and, and, and give it a good week or two and, and have someone that knows what they're doing helping them. I, I don't think that that, that uh, fear of it being difficult would, would last. Right. Absolutely. Now, now, what do you think, let's talk about some of the biggest advancements because, and the reason I want to discuss this, not only is it interesting, but do you know, I'm sure you run into the same folks. I run into people and I understand because, you know, if you look at the very top bows nowadays, I mean, they're not cheap. You know, let's 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 be honest. Right. I mean, it seems like, you know, even back when I got started, you know, like a seven or eight hundred dollar bow would be like the, the most money you could spend on a bow. And now it's pushing like double that or it is double that you could spend, you know, fifteen hundred dollars on a top of the line bow. And again, yeah, I realize every manufacturer has bows again all the way down into that five hundred, maybe even less than that range. So there's a wide range. But I run into a lot of guys who's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with the bow that I have now. I've had it, you know, for 10 years, 12 years. I shoot it really well. I don't see any reason to upgrade. And it's like, maybe they think, you know, because I work in the industry or something that I've got some kind of ulterior motive. But, you know, I'm not in the business of building bows or selling bows, but I guess I am a bit of an evangelist for all the advantages that this newer equipment offers because there's so many things that help us as bow hunters and as shooters that I just want people I'm like you don't understand you know if you have a bow that's just a couple years old yeah you might not be missing out on too much although even there there's guaranteed to be a few improvements that have been made but if you've got something that's you know five eight ten years old you gotta you owe it to yourself to get into a pro shop and try some of these new models because you won't believe, you know, the changes that have taken place in just, you know, 10 years time. What are some of the things, Randy, that you've seen even in the last five to 10 years that in your mind have really made a difference in, you know, the quality of the bows, the accuracy of the bows? Well, you know, uh, just to step back a little bit, um, you know, it depends on what you're on what you're doing let's just take the average midwestern or eastern bow hunter that's shooting and you know his long shots are probably going to be 35 yards 
And then let's compare that to rifle hunting. I have my grandfather's 300 Savage uh, that was built in 1903, a lever action uh, Savage Model 99, I think. Now, if I were an Eastern whitetail hunter and I wanted to take that out with its iron sights and shoot, I would still be proficient. Now, it's a 120-year-old technology. And the same thing holds true for bows. And I think guys, depending on what they do, um, I I think guys say, hey, I can do it. And they can. And they don't want to spend, uh, you know, $1,500. But if I were hunting in the West or, or if I just wanted to be that much better, and of course we're in the industry, so we see the advances and we see that, okay, this is going to give me a 5% better chance of actually killing a deer at 45 yards and that's great uh but i think we need to be careful in trying to to encourage people that they have to buy something new if it's like my brother shoots competitive rifles and you know he can literally hit uh, well they shoot it's they shoot very quickly and they shoot at long distances and they have to dial the turrets and all that sort of thing and they're incredibly accurate now it, it would be like him saying, okay, you, you really shouldn't shoot that 300 Savage anymore. And as far as the expensive bow, you know, there's always a few of us that want to shoot the latest and the greatest. And, you know, maybe that's 20% of bow hunters that want to get a new bow every year or two. But for people that have a barrier to entry, uh, they don't have to do that. You can get a four or five-year-old bow from Craigslist or whatever that, that, that one of us is selling because, you know, we want the new technology. And really, they're, they're, the, the improvements in the bow has, has uh, reached a point of somewhat diminishing returns. They keep getting better and better and better, but the, the jumps aren't as big as they used to be. However, that being said, if you want to be the very, very best bow hunter you can be, then yes, I mean, geez, the new technologies are incredible. Now, getting around to answering your question, the, the biggest thing that I've seen, to be honest with you, is, and you know this from my writing, you know, you, you've been around quite a while with Peterson's, but, you know, I think 10 or 15 years before you were there, I was writing, and and back then I was just hawking on, hey, you got to shoot a longer axle axle bow, you got to shoot a lot higher brace height. And, you know, I was, I, I had almost convinced, you know, <laughs> I had said it so many times that I'd convinced myself that it's true because it was true uh, when I started saying it. And then I started shooting these shorter bows and, and uh, you know, the lower brace height. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the technology has improved so much that these bows actually shoot well. So one of the things that that, uh, that I think has really, really is improved is, is the wheel and limb technology and just just being able to shoot like I shoot a 34 inch bow now which 15 or 20 years ago I would have screamed I'll never do that you know I'm shooting a bow with a 7 inch brace height or 6 and 3 quarters and it's and yes it's better than anything I've ever had Mm -hmm. Um, so I think just the improvement in the speed the 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 efficiency of the bow and and the 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 accuracy and and more than that the forgiveness in a short bow has just been phenomenal yeah let's talk about a few specifics as to why that's the case and the first thing you touched on it has to do with the relationship 
uh, between bow speed and brace height and forgiveness and how all those three factors interplay. Um, you know, it was uh, a term that I, I don't know if it was coined by Blake Shelby at PSE, but he was the first one who ever talked to me about it. And he likes to talk about something he calls dynamic brace height. And what he means by that is, okay, if we if we step back for a second and say typically, right, we always say that if you have, you know, five different bows in front of you, the one with the greatest brace height is going to be the most forgiving. And I guess all things being equal, that's true, because obviously the greater the brace height, the, the faster the arrow is off the string after release, and so the less time you have as a shooter to influence uh, the shot or to introduce, you know, inaccuracies into the shot before the arrow is away. But when Blake talks about dynamic brace height, what he means is if you have one bow that has a 7-inch brace height and it's got an IBO speed rating of, say, 320 feet per second, and you've got another bow that's got a 5 and 3 quarter inch brace height and it's got an IBO speed rating of 370 feet per second that the actual the effective brace height or the dynamic brace height between those two bows might be essentially equal or the bow that's got a brace height that's one and a quarter inches shorter might actually have a greater dynamic brace height because that added speed the string is accelerating so much more quickly that the time difference is negligible. And so that's part of that added forgiveness that you can get. And granted, there are other things about that added speed and, and the draw cycle that might introduce some challenges, but that is an interesting concept. And I think that there is some merit to looking at things that way. What is your feeling about that, Randy? Well, I, I to be honest with you, I, I have to say I respectfully disagree. Um, I, I think there's more to it than that. I don't think, in my experience, uh, and and this isn't based on anything scientific. It's just my my thoughts. Um, I believe that um, there's more to it than that. There's there's a a, a geometry where the, where the arrow. First of all, let's back up a little bit. One of the things that help us on, on the brace height, I believe, is is having a string stop, uh, so that string isn't traveling nearly as far forward as it used to be. Now, think of it this way: uh, if your string releases the arrow, uh, say three inches from the arrow rest, if the string is one quarter, let's say, yeah, a quarter inch off of its alignment at that point, the geometry makes the arrow would make the arrow miss further than if the string was released, say, seven inches back, if, and it was a quarter inch off of its track. So I think there's a lot more with the geometry of the bow, uh, and, and obviously, uh, a good shooter, someone that doesn't influence the bow and put any rotational force or any torque on the bow's handle during the shot uh, can, can shoot just about anything. What I've found is, is no matter what, uh, no, even with the same bow, what I've found is speed, and, and, and this is in a linear function, and it depends on the bow and, and, the, and, the, and the geometry of the bow and the way that the bow risers get uh, designed, but speed 
in and of itself um, all the things that, that you have to do to create speed um, and, and, and we're talking apples to apples so with the same bow the faster that bow shoots the less forgiving it will be um, so for instance uh, I, I shoot a, what would people would be called uh, what people would call a very slow speed I shoot for hunting bow I shoot 260 feet per second and there's a reason that I do that what I've found is that uh, and this has been throughout I mean and, and it started back when we were trying to shoot really really fast um, you know back when we with IBO we had to shoot so many grains per, per, per pound and that sort of thing or we had to shoot 125 grain tip at the beginning that sort of thing and I found that the faster I shot the less forgiving the bow was and, and that's even true now even with the technology we've got so I believe uh, again speed in and of itself uh, shooting the same bow uh, the same geometry um, will will create uh, uh, a lack of forgiveness so I, I, I have to respectfully disagree with that so are you saying though when you talk about shooting like 260 feet per second you're accomplishing a lot of that slow down if you want to call it that you're saying only 260 it's not all that slow but you're you're shooting a heavier arrow that's accounting for some of that reduced velocity um are you saying that you can get more forgiveness even out of a a faster bow in other words what i'm saying is let's say you have a, a bow that you know, is a fairly fast bow and it's got a relatively short brace height. Can I get a little more forgiveness out of that bow just by increasing my arrow weight and slowing my speed down? Or do I need to switch Absolutely. to a completely different bow? No, no. For, for that particular bow, you will have more forgiveness, assuming that you have that you've taken the same amount of tune for each of those arrows. You know, say you're shooting an arrow that could shoot weight 340 feet per second or 320 feet per second. And then you take another arrow and, and you tune for that. Obviously with a heavier arrow or with a heavier tip, you're gonna have to have a stiffer arrow. But you will shoot, uh, you will be, that setup will be much more forgiving. And you can try this, uh, try it yourself and, and uh, at home. Take, tune your bow for a really fast arrow, shoot groups, and and then take that same setup. Um, you're gonna have to change your arrow. You're gonna have to use a stiffer arrow and a heavier point to get that weight. So say shoot it at 320 feet per second and see how forgiving it is. And what I'm talking about forgiveness, I'm not talking about shooting it through a shooting machine. I'm talking about little things that you change from shot to shot because uh, for the most part, when I'm shooting uh, here in the West, I'm always in an awkward position of some sort because I'm laying down on the ground and then I got to kneel and, and, and shoot around a bush or whatever it is, shooting down you know, a steep mountainside or whatever. So your form's not perfect like it is in your backyard. So everything changes, your dynamic form changes. Uh, from shot to shot as you're, as you're shooting a game. What I'm talking about when I say forgiveness is when, when let's say that you're twisting around a tree to shoot like in your tree stand. Um, you take those two bows and let's say 
when you twist around in your tree stand, uh, you're all of a sudden creating some different forces in, in that bow when you shoot it. And let's say at 30 yards, you're going to miss by three inches with your with your uh, forgiving bow. Uh, with your unforgiving bow, you might miss by five or six. That's my point. Uh, but t- take a bow and, and try that. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And, and you accomplish a couple of other things there, and these are actually very important to me as well. Um, the main thing for me, I, my the thing that I'm addicted to is hunting mule deer. And mule deer don't have the reputation of jumping the stream, but old bucks, you know, they've been chased by cougars for their whole lives. And they jump the string as well. And I'm not talking about young bucks. I'm not talking about three or four-year-old bucks, but five, six, seven, eight-year-old bucks, mule deer bucks, uh, jump the spring better than as good as any as any whitetail buck. And one of the things that I've done is I've been so diligent over the last 30 years or 40 years trying to figure out how to quiet my bow. And, and the thing that I finally come up with is, you know, the best way to quiet your bow is to shoot a heavy arrow. Now, back when we had no laser rangefinders, that was, that was uh, you know, heresy. You did not want to do that because... Um, you know, you, 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 your limiting factor then was being able to judge the artist, so you had to shoot a fastbow. But there's no good reason we have to shoot a fastbow now. You actually get a whole lot of better performance downrange. You, you maintain your velocity. You, you know, you have less decay of, of, of velocity downrange when you're shooting a happy arrow. And there's a lot of other. You have better penetration. Um, you have a a lot of benefits from shooting a heavy arrow Uh, and when you know the distance if you know that that's 43 yards it doesn't matter whether you're shooting a fast arrow or a slow arrow and i've found that the sound produced by a fast bow uh, is much uh, a much more important factor uh, than than that extra arrow speed uh, getting that arrow to the target if you're talking about a, a deer that's jumping the string now, what's your what's your technical explanation for why that would be the case? If I'm going to gain, theoretically, right? It's the same bow, so I'm going from a lighter arrow to a heavier arrow, and you're saying it's going to mm-hmm. be a little more forgiving. What's the reason for that? Am I not getting as much uh, uh, inconsistency in the knock travel, or just by adding that weight? Why why is the bow a little more forgiving with that heavier arrow? Well. You know, I, rather than talk about exactly why that is technically, because I'm not sure I know all the reasons, but I think it's true for anything that involves speed. Um, again, people that shoot uh, these wildcat cartridges, you know, for competition, what they've found as well, and, and, and just like with bows, the guns are getting better and better and better at shooting faster and faster and faster. But what happens is is when you are, are using, well, the same thing with race cars. The faster they go, the more likely they are to come apart and the, the more difficult they are to control. Anything that goes kind of at its red line is going to have more issues. And and the same is true with a bow and arrow. And one of the things is, is the faster it shoots, uh, I think the less consistent it is in the performance. Uh, it's not going to have as good a knock travel. There's going to be much, much, much more 
vibration. When a bow is shooting a heavy arrow, uh, a higher percentage of its energy goes into the arrow rather than in uh, the vibration because when you shoot a really, really lightweight arrow, uh, a, a much lower percentage of the bow's energy goes into the arrow uh, propelling the arrow forward and a lot more of that energy goes into things wiggling uh, and vibration uh, that's the reason that fast bows are so much noisier and so when you slow things down um, you just get a more consistent um, a more consistent uh, pushing of that arrow yeah and I, I think a big a big part of it and something that we haven't touched on yet particularly for hunting applications that it's the broadhead on the front of the arrow because you know at a high speed you know let's say over 300 or 310 feet per second with a field point you could probably maintain somewhat consistent groupings but when you start to put broadheads on the end of those arrows and then you even switch from one broadhead to the next you know each time you change the profile of the head that's on the front of that arrow it's going to behave differently as it encounters you know air resistance between the bow and the target and then you introduce variable conditions in the field right you've got wind that's constantly changing in speed and direction you know even if ever so slightly that's where as you add that speed the greater the speed the greater the impact you know all that is going to have from shot to shot so i, I agree with you you're not going to well i think i think you made a great point there and, and a, a great thing you or, or other people can experiment i've already experimented with it take your super fast bow screw on different types of broadheads and see how far apart they are different different brands of broadheads then take your bow that's shooting you know 260 feet per second and do the same thing and i think you'll find that that, that there's much more consistency from from your slower uh setup than there will be in your really fast setup they're just they're just much 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 more critical and again um I don't understand why why speed is still such an issue. Uh, it's a good way to sell. If if the consumer thinks that speed's important, then um, then uh, they're gonna they're going to buy the fastest bow. But really, with laser range finders, and I don't know any bow hunters other than traditionalists that aren't using a laser range finder because their price is so reasonable compared to what it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago when they first came out. Um, but but you're just going to find that, that that speed is just not that important anymore. Yeah. What now? Now efficiency is, and obviously efficiency and speed go hand in hand. You know, it used to be, you know. 25, 30 years ago that a bow that got like 78% efficiency was just phenomenal. And now they're much, much, much more efficient than that. Yeah, most, and, of, the, most of the top bows now are pushing 90% efficiency. Exactly. I remember when the, the white Rambo came out. Uh, this was, geez, 25, 30 years ago. and it was, was that endorsed by pushing. Sylvester Stallone? You know, I'm sure they had some contractual agreement because it was right after the movie Rambo came out. Um, and it was pretty cool because you kill, kill a helicopter with that bow. Um, but anyway, uh, I remember that bow was right at 80%. That was such a big deal. Um, and now the bows are so much efficient, more efficient. And they, they, they're also uh, 
you know, they're also storing much more energy because of the short brace height, the short brace height, and the short axle axle weight, and and also the string materials are so much lighter and better, and and there's just, you know. Uh, so much less hysteresis in the bow and, and hysteresis is just uh, kind of the all the friction and grind to, to make the bow move through its its shot cycle but there's so much less hysteresis now things are just so much more efficient that these bows are so much better and they store so much more energy so you know with that being said we're still 260 feet per second 20 years ago or not 20 years ago but uh, 25 or 30 years ago was lightning fast so now I'm shooting what historically has been a lightning fast bow that is much more forgiving than any bow I've shot in the past. Right. And I've got a laser range finder and I can't remember and well, I don't range find anything under 30 yards. I shot 3D archery so long that uh, I think I can judge out to 30 yards. But if it's pushing if it's over 30 yards, there's no way I'm not taking, I just won't shoot uh, unless I pull my laser range finder out because I've learned the hard way that, uh, you know, the, the limiting factor, the limiting factor in shooting nowadays, I don't care really almost how bad a shot you are, unless you have buck fever, is, 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 is the distance. If you know the distance and having historically shot for 20 years or longer than that before the range finders came out that was so critical i'd sit there and study the yardage study the yardage and then shoot and miss and you just go oh god you know uh, it would just kill you now there's no reason there's no reason to shoot fast i mean fast by today's standards right you mentioned something earlier you know a uh, string stop and you really talked about the benefits you think that has brought to bows most uh bows nowadays generally come with a string stop but there's still quite a few people that are shooting bows you know that don't have them you know because even as much as five years recently as five years ago they weren't necessarily standard issue except for on some of the higher end bows that's a relatively inexpensive aftermarket accessory you might be able to pick up for you know 30 or 50 dollars is that something you would recommend to people if they don't have a string stop on their bow that they consider installing uh, yeah one? now for target archers you'll find a lot of the target archers a lot of the top target archers take the string stop off and you know they're they're incredibly concerned about minute accuracy and and this might this might not sound good <laughs> but you know as bow hunters we don't have to have the kind of accuracy that a target archery has to have and I was a target archer for a long long time so you know I I, I know what what the difference between bow hunting accuracy and target archery accuracy is like really to win Vegas anymore you're going to have to be hitting the, the little X which is about the size of a nickel at 60 feet 20 yards uh, pretty much almost every shot um, and as a bow hunter you know we don't have to have that kind of accuracy you know if you can keep it in the yellow on a Vegas watch which, which is whatever three inches two and three quarters inches whatever it is um, you know that's good that's plenty good for bow hunter you know unless you're hunting squirrels I suppose but uh, you know for us and 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 uh, you know most of us don't take shots over well, in the West here, you know, a six, I consider a 60-yard shot as my maximum, um, mainly because whatever deer I'm hunting, I've been watching all summer, and I, the last thing I want to do is scare him or wound him 
Um, so I, I really limit myself, and 60 yards may not sound like a, a limit, but that has to be broadside, you know, no wind, in perfect conditions, him standing still, all that sort of thing. And at that yardage, I feel like I can be pretty consistent. But um, my point is we just don't have to have that pinpoint accuracy because at 60 yards on a mule deer buck, you really got an 8-inch paper plate target there, maybe even a 10-inch paper plate target that you have to hit. And that is not the kind of accuracy that you're going to have to have to to to, to win a, a a tournament. So um, so we we just don't have to have that kind of accuracy, and the string stop um, will affect your accuracy ever so slightly. At least in the minds of these professionals, it will. So they take their string stop off. For a bow hunter, I think the string stop provides so many benefits that uh, the benefits far outweigh the, the minute. Uh, 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 the minute uh, loss of So what, the, the benefits, less noise, less vibration, what else? Uh, the main thing, in my opinion, is it gets the arrow off the string quicker and also... Uh, it, one of the things that that makes a um, that makes a setup inaccurate, and you know, when people are shooting in their backyard in the summertime, they never think about these things very often. But the main thing is is, is really changing your clothing when you have these short brace height bows. Let's say that it's a five and a half or a six inch brace height bow, very short brace height. Um, that string is traveling very far forward before it releases that arrow, and most people's form. Uh, what happens is that string may lightly touch your forearm and then if you put a say a down coat or even just uh, a couple of layers uh, mm-hmm. a, a, for a fall November October hunt all of a sudden that string's hunting, hitting your arm a little harder so when you're out in and practicing in your backyard you got your bow all sighted in you know and, and what you'll find if you're right handed is, is that oh geez I missed to the left why did I miss to the left I don't know I must have been torquing the bow well what it is is if back before string stops it was always that the string was hitting your arm a little bit harder than it was before. You know, before in practice with, you know, with just a shirt sleeve or, or just, uh, you know, short sleeves, you know, you might feel the string touch your forearm occasionally. No big deal. It didn't hurt. But all of a sudden, you know, you've got a half an inch of, of, of uh, clothing there, and and that string is hitting your arm at the most crucial moment when it is releasing the arrow, and all of a sudden you're going to be missing to the left. Um, so the string stop has has really cut down on on that. That's really particular it's problem. Really, really cut down on forearm bruises too, Randy, because yeah, I can remember, exactly. you know, back when I started, I mean, my my Mach 8 sure didn't have a string stopper on it and man, I can remember the first time I gave myself a nasty black and blue on the forearm and I learned pretty quick, you might want to wear an arm guard there when you shoot. And of course, like you say with that heavy clothing, that was always a concern. And now, you know, with the string stop you don't think too much at least i don't anyway i don't think too much about how puffy you know my jacket is on my forearm because it's very very rare you know to have an instance well like you said they're so commonplace now that people have actually kind of forgotten about that issue Uh, yeah it's really killed the uh, arm guard market because they (laughs) because they're doing their job nobody thinks about it anymore but that's probably the number one reason why i leave my string stop on my uh 
on my honey bow. Yeah. Now let's talk about something else that's become very common on today's bows, almost universal on compound bows today, which we didn't see, you know, back when you and I started, and that's the parallel limb configuration. I mean, that's the that's probably the most noticeable cosmetic thing if you just look at, you know, any compound bow of today versus yesteryear. You know, they were much longer, longer between the axles because the limbs were so much more. You know, the limb angle was much much wider. Talk to me about you know parallel limb design and and the benefits you think that brings to you as a bow hunter. Well, the biggest thing is the bow uh, actually sits in your hand. Well, uh, being an older bow hunter, one of the things uh, I would say, uh, well, a very high percentage of the bow hunters that started shooting when they were kids that are my age today um, have shoulder issues of some sort. I mean, my my business, one of my business partners has uh, been bow hunting since he was in his 20s, and he's just had to have both shoulders replaced, or he's had one replaced, he's about to have the other one replaced, and many, many, many bow hunters you'll read over and over, I mean, Fred Eichler right now is having problems with his shoulders, and a lot of other, um, you know, shooters, and Fred's not as old as I am, and a lot of these shooters just have shoulder problems. Well... Where I'm going with this is 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 back in the day, um, these old we'll call them the old-fashioned compounds that that had way you know limb designs that were about as far away from parallel as you can get. What happened is the bow would really push against you on the shoulder because all the all the force was coming back at you as it pushed the arrow forward. You know Newton's law. You know for every well, you know what Newton's law. Every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. But the the arrow being pushed forward, all that force would come back into your shoulder and your arm. Mm. And back then, uh, you know, you'll notice when I shoot, at least whenever I'm shooting competition or whenever I'm shooting in practice, I always use a a um, a little wristling that goes around my fingers and back hooks back in and the reason I started doing that is because these bows if, if you had a relaxed hand they would jump out of your hand I mean not just a little bit they would jump out really jump out of your hand and the interesting thing is every once in a while I forget to to put my uh, wristling on and um and I'll shoot, and and with these parallel limb design bows, the bow just sits in your hand. Mm-hmm. So, and the reason that's important, a couple of different reasons. It's easier on your your body, but the other thing is, is I believe these bows wiggle less during the shot. What you want is a stable platform as that bow is pushing the arrow forward. And when these bows, all the force is going out away from the bows. It's going it's going vertically up and it's going vertically down. And with the old bows, all the force would go straight back. Right. And when the force is going straight back, if you didn't have the exact right hand position, um, as the bow would start going back, it would start rotating in your hand. And now that the bow kind of sits in your hand, it makes it much more forgiving. Yeah, I had never really heard anyone, you know, speak about it like that. That makes a lot of sense. The thing that, you know, like when we do our bow tests and John Silks does those for us, John always talks about it from more of an engineering standpoint where you've got 
like you said, you've got those equal and opposite forces now on these parallel designs. So you got right fifty percent of that excess energy is kind of shooting straight up, fifty percent is kind of shooting straight down, and those equal and opposite forces help to cancel the noise and the vibration. But I've never really heard somebody talk about it quite that way from the shooter standpoint, which makes a lot of sense. You know, the, it's less it's less force being applied onto the shooter's body and uh, getting that added stability as well. So that's pretty cool. Well, I've always been an accuracy fanatic, and, and uh, you know, I always think of things. And, you know, back when I was shooting and had to shoot past for 3D, I was always thinking about performance. But uh, for the last 15, 20 years, I think more about stability, accuracy, what makes a bow more, more forgiving because I just wanted to hit where it's aimed. Um, and, and, and that's probably why I think of, of, of parallel InDesign in, in, in the terms of how it affects my performance. Sure. Now let's, uh, let's touch a little bit on, on string travel, knock travel. And well, there's certainly been, you know, an incredible amount of improvement in that regard. Now, when you draw a bowstring back, you know, there's really two axes that we're talking about, right? You've got your... your horizontal knock travel and you've got vertical knock travel and you know vertical knock travel back in the early days of compounds would really be a problem with cam systems where you wouldn't be able to keep the cams in sync you know on on two cam bows and so if you had one cam that would be rotating you know faster or slower than the other cam you'd have that string you know pushing the knock up or down as it went you know on its way to leave the bow and so a lot of that was solved you know by these newer cam systems where the cams are really slave to one another and so you don't run into nearly as much trouble with you know unequal cam rotation as you used to and then you've got issue with the horizontal knock travel or the knock being pushed you know from side to side and that's where i've seen you know the biggest improvements lately um if you look at some of the really innovative ideas that have been brought to the archery market you know to me one of the most effective and interesting was what you know prime archery introduced probably five or six years ago now when they came out with that parallel cam design where they lobed their cams and really moved the forces of all that energy that's stored in the bow from the very center of the system out toward the side of the axles to balance that out so you didn't have as much sideways torque put on the the system once you were at full draw and now what I've seen a lot of manufacturers do here in the last one or two years everyone seems to be going to these yoking systems on their control cables and they're splitting the cables and attaching those cables whether it's to the to the sides of the axles or to a couple different points on the cams again they're splitting these loads and equalizing load and doing that in combination with stiffer shorter limbs so you've got more torsional 
impulse to stability. So you're equalizing the load on the cams, you're stiffening the limbs, the limbs aren't as prone to twist. We've really taken a lot of the inherent instability in horizontal knock travel out of the equation and and that is resulting in increased accuracy and more consistency um you know is that what you're seeing randy and in, in the bows that you're shooting yeah you you actually explained it very well i don't even think i have to say anything but we'll take it one step further back uh, when you say, you know, that the, the uh, you know, when we went to camps back in the old days, back in the old days for you, you know, was, is, 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 is when they started having issues with uh, synchronization. Now, you go way back to the original bows that had wheels, again, that were, you know, uh, two inches maximum in diameter. Uh, these bows, the reason they had to be so long is because the longer the bow and the smaller the wheels, uh, the less problems you have had with with synchronization and that's why we were able to shoot as well as we did even though they're very slow these round wheel bows uh, that i started with you know back in the 70s and 80s were actually pretty well synced um they did not have those problems it's when we started introducing big cams uh, i remember when high country introduced the first hatchet cam and um this was back in the early 80s i think and uh you know they started having serious issues with timing and as the bows got shorter and the wheels got larger and the limbs got shorter uh, we really started having problems with with uh, synchronization and i think one of the things that has improved the accuracy and, and and allowed us to shoot these shorter bows like we talked about earlier is for bows to get shorter and shorter is the you know the computer-aided design on these wheels where uh, first of all we you know we went to the one cam and and that was cool then we went to so you didn't have those problems and then the technology of the cam and a half came along and where the, the, the cams are slaved to one another that helped a lot but I think the biggest thing that's helped is, is having these cams designed to where they actually were perfectly designed because before uh, you know I don't think they had they never got an engineered perfectly to where they would sink and 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 now they've they've improved the design you know they they've they, they've improved the machine and, and, and the technology to where they actually uh, do shoot well, and, and you do have a more parallel knock, or yeah, more uh, parallel knock travel um, as far as uh, horizontal goes. But I mean, uh, as far as vertical goes, and and yeah, the, the improvements. And you just look at the new Hoyt bows this year, the 2018 models. You know, they have they they have the system on the bottom limb where the limbs can be can you know you can adjust the limbs to where they travel perfectly before you know you were kind of uh, kind of on your own you had to just uh, uh, you had to move the arrow rest left and right trying to get the uh, bow to shoot the arrow uh, you know to get a perfect hole through paper and and now you can kind of fine tune them above and below and and the limbs are getting wider before before I mean you look at the old uh, like you look at some of the old uh, Matthews bows and they had such skinny limbs and uh, part of the problem with that is is that limb was much easier to torque left and right and you had problems with that and and all the bows even with the you know with the with the dual limb system uh, they started out with with narrower limbs and now they're going to wider limbs and, and better limb pockets that, that are more stable oh yeah the tolerances on those pockets them, yeah it's a lot better 
Yeah, and, and that keeps the that keeps the limbs from from twisting uh, as the you know in, during the dynamic uh, portion of the shot, and 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 that in and of itself has has really improved the horizontal knock travel. I remember back in the day when I would get four or five bows when I was shooting a lot of competition I'd get four or five bows and one of them would be good the rest of them um, just wouldn't I mean I could get them to shoot a hole through paper but I would have to go through a lot of contortions to do that what I've always found is if you get a bow and you know you put the knock where it should be you time the wheels where they should be you you set the center shot where it should be you shoot that arrow through paper and if you're not getting a pretty good hold that bow is not going to be the best shooting bow and and uh and and i i just you know i won't shoot that but nowadays oh my gosh uh with the weight bows i get now you put your arrest where it's supposed to be you put the you know you put everything where it's supposed to be shoot it and it's really surprising if you don't get a perfect bullet hole the technology and and the tech not only the technology but the quality control has become so incredibly good on these on these higher end bows and even a lot of the lower end bows uh, were, were uh, you just don't have to work very hard to get them to shoot very well because they have like you say good horizontal knock travel and they have good vertical knock travel. Yeah I mean I think the variability right from bow to bow is probably a lot less today than it was years ago sounds like you know like you said back in the day you know in 1980 if you and four of your buddies all bought the same bow two of those bows might be pretty good you know two of them might be so-so and one of them might be almost impossible to tune and I, I doubt if we did the same thing with five you know flagship bows right off the line today that we'd find so much variability for, from unit to unit you know and and of course we well that's true and go ahead Go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, we touched on string, you know, string materials alone. Strings and cables don't stretch nearly as much as they did in the past, really hardly at all probably nowadays, and, and that keeps, you know, things in tune. And the last thing before we wrap it up that I wanted to touch on, and it's probably, uh, at least in terms of uh, aluminum risers, it's not the sexiest thing. It probably doesn't get much attention at all because it's nothing that you can see with the naked eye. Um when it comes to the risers, um, the the alloys that the bow companies are using today, the aluminum that they're using now is so much stiffer than what was used years ago that that has dramatically increased the consistency of the shooting as well because, you know, if you can't even see it with the naked eye. I mean, most of us don't think about the fact that our bow is actually, like, flexing back and forth as we shoot it. But if you see that high-speed video of bows being shot, you, you, it's almost unbelievable how much the, the bow will actually flex. But the newer materials are so much stiffer that it's reduced that flex dramatically. And so that stability results in more consistent shooting and then so we've got better materials you know on a lot of these aluminum bows and then of course we've had the growing prominence of carbon as a material for risers as well and I know you've shot you know uh, quite a few of the carbon you know riser bows that Hoyt's made and, and probably continue to shoot some of their aluminum bows talk to me about you know the newer riser designs whether it be carbon and aluminum and, and what you're seeing there and if you have have a preference for one material or the other, Randy? Well, 
back to what I said earlier, um, what you want is a completely stable shooting platform. Um, you, you don't want, ideally, you would like to have a perfectly stiff riser handle because you don't want that to flex. You want it to be perfectly stable throughout the shot process from the drawing process to, to uh, the arrow flying out of the bow. Uh, you don't want anything wiggling. Now, back in the day, you could take a bow and you could pull it back and you could watch the riser twist, literally. And which is okay because it twisted the same way every time. But um, it was, again, less forgiving because it didn't do everything the same way every time because you are human and you didn't do everything the same way every time. Um, you talked about the improvement in, in, in uh, aluminum and, and the materials that they use, but one of the things you didn't address um, is the improvement in the technology of, of the design of the riser. Absolutely. Not to toot Hoyt's horn, but you know Hoyt kind of started it um, when they 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 built their bows that you know had the the extra piece that came around the backside sure. of the bow and yeah, just the, the provided bridge, an incredible amount of stiffness. And now, yeah, now you see it in in a lot of the different bow handles. You'll see uh, instead of just being a straight piece of metal with a couple of holes uh, machined in it, uh, now you'll find these designs that kind of look like a, a, a bridge. Sure. And yeah, the reason like a, they look like a bridge yeah. is because a bridge is built for stability, and and these bows now are, are, are built for stability. People have finally figured that out, and it costs a lot more to do that, obviously. But so uh, the the improvement in materials, and then the improvement in design. So those two things, and also the limb materials. But the biggest thing, well. One of the biggest things in my mind is the improvement in limb pocket technology. Uh, years ago, 30 years ago, um, I won't use it to the, the company's name, but a company was uh, was uh, trying to get me to shoot their bow, and I went to their factory, and and um, uh, the president of the company was there, and, and uh, he said, what do you think of my bow, or our bow? And I said, well, let me show you something. So I took the bow, and I shot it at a Vegas face and hit the, you know, hit the yellow at 20 yards. And then uh, I took the bow and I put it over my knee and I kind of just pushed down on each limb up by the wheel and then shot the bow again. And, you know, the bow shot two inches to the right. And then I took it and put it over my knee again in the opposite direction and pushed on it. And the bow shot two inches to the left. And... My point being is not that they had a bad bow because really everybody had the problem back then. But my problem is their limb pocket design was so poor that the limbs could shift. Now, their their argument was that, hey, you know, it's going to kind of find its home and it's going to just shoot that way every time. Well, that's not really the case. They tended, I call it the limb pocket walk. The limb would actually walk in the pocket and you'd start shooting left and then you'd shoot right and it was very frustrating. But the limb pockets nowadays, and, and I'm most familiar with the, the Hoyt limb pockets, they have just come so far. I mean, I used to, I mean, even up till 15 years ago, I would always shim my limbs in the limb pocket, every limb, if you had a four, you know, if you had a quad limb, if you had four different limbs, I'd shim every one and I'd try to keep the limbs parallel all the way out. But now, 
you don't have to do that. The limb pockets are so phenomenal. So the limb pocket design and the way it attaches to the uh, the uh, riser itself is is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's something that probably doesn't get as much attention from the average consumer because again, you can't you can't see it necessarily, or it doesn't. You know, to the naked well, eye, it doesn't it. look the, that much different. The thing is, is, it was so long ago that it, that the problem existed that people don't even know that it's a potential problem. I, I still do the same test on all my bows because I want to know if I have to shim them, but I haven't shimmed a weight limb in, in years because I don't have to. Their limb pocket design is so good. I mean, and the, not only the limb pocket design, but the tolerances, you know, they're, they're, they're within thousands, each limb pocket and each limb is within thousands and, and probably tens of thousands. So the limb fits so tightly in the limb pocket that it's not going to walk. Yeah. So, so let's wrap it up this way, Randy. I know probably one of the questions that you get asked most frequently from people is your concerns buying a bow. You know, what, what bow they should buy or what features they, they need or if, if it's really worth, you know, spending the extra for for one of the carbon bows or something like that. So, you know, uh, acknowledging the fact that you're a, you're a Hoyt shooter, um, what, you know, whether somebody's looking for a very top-of-the-line bow or whether somebody is just getting into archery, or maybe they're looking for their first bow, what are, you know, some of the key features that you really recommend people look for if they're, if they're looking, you know, for a bow, whether it's that first bow or an upgraded bow? Uh, just give me your, maybe, you know, your top three to five bullet points, and then we'll take it home on that. Okay. Well, first of all, um, let's take a step back. I think if when I buy something, you know, I've kind of got to the point in my life where I've learned that when I buy something, I want to buy the very best out there. Uh, and at this point, you know, if I want to buy a really good pair of binoculars, I can afford it. Now, back in the day, I, I certainly couldn't. But if you can afford it, and if you really want to get serious about it, and I'm talking about a first-time bow hunter that's going to go in and buy the first bow. If you can afford it, you know, go in and buy the very best you can from a pro shop. And, and you know, again, I'm a Hoyt shooter. I love Hoyt bows. However, uh, if you stick with any name brand, you're going to be fine. Um, you know, it's like Ford, Chevy, whatever. People have their preferences. preferences. Um, but... However, let's take it back a step. Let's say you're a young guy, you're in, in high school, college, or just got a, you know, got a young family, and you want, uh, you want to get into it. You don't need to spend a lot of money. You can either buy if you if you like. Some people always like to buy new stuff. You know, you can buy one of the the, the cheapest models of, of any of these name brands, and you're going to be fine. Your shooting ability is not. You're not going to be able to tell the difference for quite some time between a really, really, really good bow and a, a lesser bow. Um, and if your budget is really bad or if you have a mentor, if you know somebody that uh, you know likes to buy a new bow every year, then then buy a used bow. Uh, the cool thing about buying a used bow is usually all the accessories go with it and the accessories can be, all the accessories together can be geez, almost as expensive as the bow. And usually they'll throw in a few arrows so you can kind of get started right away at a, at a much reduced price but to answer your question what are the bullet points for for 
a, a given bow. What, what are you looking for? Again, and I'm harping on this, and I may be a little old-fashioned, but I like, of the hunting bows, I like the longest axle to axle especially for a new shooter because it's going to be more forgiving for you which, which like, you know today's I, day and age randy is going to be probably 30, 35 inches at the max 34 35 inches that's why but that's what i shoot because to me really pinpoint accuracy speed is not that critical forgiveness is so much more important to me and and if you're a bow and i if you're a target shooter you know it it's uh, we can it's a completely different conversation but for a bow hunter that's just getting started uh, longer axle axle higher brace height and don't try to well th- this isn't this isn't equipment related but it's formulated shoot a reasonable draw length. Uh, most people try to shoot a really long draw length, and you're going to be much better with a draw length that's too short than too long. So, a long axle, axle, high brace height. Don't shoot the lightest. Don't shoot what's, an extremely what, lightweight arrow. What's high? What's a high, arrow? What's a high brace height in today's? world really. <laughs> I, guess, I ain't even saying it but seven inches <laughs> it's high it's hard some, some of the some of the companies don't even make a flagship bow with a seven inch brace head anymore I mean you might have I to go it. six and, and a half and that's fine and you'll be fine but that's what I shoot I'm just telling you what I shoot um, and you know I mean and I've been shooting competition for 40 some 40 you know, 40 years so I think although it's probably deteriorating I, I used to have good form so I could get away probably with yeah I'm sure that I'm sure you stink now. (laughs) You can shoot a... a, I could probably get away with shooting a bow that was a little less forgiving. But again, in hunting situations, forgiveness is so important. So those are my recommendations uh, uh, for for uh, equipment for a a newbie to start with. Those are the things I think are, are critical. Now, and what about and you know what, what we'll just step up you know uh, I'm going uh, way out of bounds here but but probably the most important thing that a new person could do is find somebody that really knows what they're doing and and I hate to say this um, but it's probably not going to be a bow hunter well it's it could be a bow hunter but find someone that shoots target archery and have them help you with your form and it only take like say hey you mind spending an hour with me or half an hour with me get me started on the right track most guys that shoot bows are so nice especially target archers and bow hunters and but find a target archer that's pretty good have him, have him uh, or find someone that coach that can give you lessons get started on the right track and then refresh that in a month and say hey am I developing any bad habits and that's probably going to do more for you than than uh, than any equipment equipment oh, yeah. that you could buy well, and that's where you're again you know you mentioned it but I, I never hesitate to throw in a plug for the local pro shop because those guys are you know the backbone of our industry there's a lot of knowledge to be had and as you mentioned you know for somebody who's looking to maybe not spend a ton of money you know that first bow that I got that Mach 8 I bought that used from a guy who worked at a pro shop because he would always upgrade every year to the latest bow so I was able to get a bow you know that was probably a year old or two years old at the most and it had like you said it had all those accessories and you know i got a great deal on that bow so you know your local pro shop's a great place to to not only you know get some good deals on gear but to get a lot of knowledge and to get set up right to get some instruction to shoot the right way right off the bat 
Well, you know, I uh, I race mountain bikes, and so did my sons. And uh, and I, I I coach. Well, I did up till this year. I coached the high school team. My son just graduated. But um, one of the things I encouraged all the kids to do is there's all these pros, especially here in the state of Arizona. There's all these pros that buy the best newest bike. You know, it's ten thousand dollar bike. And you know, they're some of them are sponsored, and, and some of them just want the newest equipment. And so they buy a new bike every year. But what I encourage these guys, kids, to do, and and uh, my sons as well, is man, go find a pro and say, hey, <laughs> you know. You getting rid of your last year's bike? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, what we sell it to me for. And it's usually one-third to one-half the price of what it was when it's new. And it's the technology. Again, we've reached a, a diminishing point in returns on technology. But yet you're getting a, a, a top-notch bicycle or bow in, in this case for half or a third of what it would cost new. And the other thing is it's it's tuned. You know, uh, you find out what arrow they were shooting, and, and uh, they're the same drawing as you, and, and all of a sudden, you're shooting the very best equipment. You're shooting equipment that's probably better than you could buy and and, uh, and set up yourself, and uh, and you've just saved a whole lot of money. And usually, if you buy it from a guy like that, he's going to help you. You say, hey, can you, can you just watch me shoot for a bit? And, and he'll watch you shoot. But one thing I'll say about pro shops is they're, they're very, very, very good at setting up bows. Make sure when you're in a pro shop that if they have a, a pro like a, a, a local guy that shoots competition you're, you're better off eventually either getting a lesson from him or uh, you know if you find a coach getting a lesson from a coach because a lot of bow hunters um, and even target shooters for that matter think they know what they're doing but they might not they might have some some things that they teach you that aren't really going to help you a whole lot so uh again find a top-notch target archer and they will be able to teach you good shooting form and then you can adapt that to your bow hunting setup oh absolutely that's great that's a great point because in most cases too you know if you're spending 500 to a thousand dollars or more on a bow setup 30 or 50 dollars to get yourself you know an hour lesson you know from a good coach is well worth it you know to get get the most out of that well listen randy we gotta wrap it up i mean we could probably talk all day but we're we've gone for a good while but i'll tell you what i've enjoyed the time you know looking at some of the latest trends in boat technology and we're certainly uh you know when it comes to equipment and bow hunting the good old days weren't the good old days these are the good old days so all we have to do is take advantage of it can i quote you on that i've got an article dude (laughs) yeah sure you quote me on that but i've got a document that's going to be the title of my next piece these are the good old days you are a genius well you know i've i've often told that that, believe it or not <laughs> oh man. Yeah, you can use that, but I'm going to I'm going to take half your pay for the for the idea. Well, you know, half of nothing, Christian, you know. <laughs> it's hey. It's next to nothing, you know. It's not nothing. <laughs> well, Randy, listen, thanks again for being with us today on Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio. It's always a pleasure. And uh, while I may not have you back for a third consecutive episode, let's make sure it's not too long before we have you back on the show. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bow Hunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bow hunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.